the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Dr. William Moyes Weaver, food historian, author of 16 books, and epicure. Dr. Will is the steward of the Roughwood Seed Collection, which he discovered at the bottom of his grandfather's freezer in the 1960s. He spent his life bringing those seeds back into production and writing books about regional American cuisine. Dr. Weaver is also a board member of the Experimental Farm Network, a grassroots organization devoted to alternative methods of seed production. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Will. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yay! And and we are again at the Heirloom Expo, where you are most the most coveted speaker, I think, in the whole place. I've been filling in for other speakers, too. <laughs> and being jet-lagged is a little... Yeah, where, where did you just come from? Philadelphia. Oh, holy cow. So I'm three hours off. And aren't you, didn't I hear yesterday that you're headed to Greece next? I'm headed to Greece uh, the 24th of September, which is like two weeks away. Right, very soon. And uh, it's a conference devoted to heirloom seeds and going back to traditional uh, regional foods and why they're better for us. Oh, great. Uh, There's a nutritional cut to this conference. Oh, very cool. And in Greece. Well, in Kalamata, Greece. Wow. At the height of Kalamata olive harvest. Oh, wow. That must be I'm fantastic. I'm going to be olived out. You are. <laughs> <laughs> and as a food epicure, that's going to be incredible. Wow. If I don't learn anything about olives there, I it's my fault. Yes, exactly. So, so the Roughwood Seed Collection contains legumes and fruits and vegetables and grains that most people have honestly never heard of. For those who aren't familiar, can you briefly tell us the story behind this collection of fascinating seeds? Well, my grandfather started it in 1932, so we're the oldest private seed collection in Pennsylvania and probably also in the East Coast. Um, We're now over 5,000 varieties because Stephen Smith is our seed uh, manager and he has added things to the collection massively within the last year. Added, meaning found other seeds of the same region? Well, he went to Peru last May and brought 1,500 varieties of rare South Amer- Inca, South American corns, and that's all now at Ruffler. Wow. So we haven't even cataloged, cataloged <laughs> this seed yet, so I don't even have an exact number of what we've got. And But the collection as it stands is somewhere around 4,000 types of seeds. We're over 5,500 easy. Oh, wow. Because we have accessioned... Um, rare potatoes, um, more beans. Um, yes, we're Everything. over 5,500. That's incredible. So, did your interest in food history come from the discovery of this of these seeds, or was that always there? I would say my interest in um, historical cooking has always been there. It's just that we had the seeds to do it, to, to grow the food, and then... Yeah. I had the interest in talking to people. This is how it worked. Um, I was trained in architecture at the University of Virginia. I did a lot of um, consulting work. And uh, one of the projects was the restoration of an 18th century house. And these people wanted the kitchen to work as it had in the 18th century. And the architects didn't know anything about cooking. 
So they brought me in, and uh, they wanted a bake oven. My grandmother knew how to bake bread in an old beehive oven. Uh-huh. She learned this from a great aunt. So I'm using my own grandmother as kind of a source to help with this architectural project, and it snowballed. Yeah. Because when you do that bread in a beehive oven, you've got to know how to make yeast. Right. The liquid yeast, you know, the sots, as we call it in Pennsylvania Dutch. What's it called? Sots. S-A-T-Z. Okay, because I'm, I'm a sourdough bread maker. Well, and that's your sourdough That's the starter. starter. That's, that's another name word. for the starter. Sots. Right. So that's the Pennsylvania Dutch word for yes. the starter. Okay, right. great. Cool. Very cool. So uh, you might say all this information just came into me from different directions. The University of Virginia sent me to Italy, which was their first mistake, ah. <laughs> to study architecture and restoration of old buildings, which I did. I lived in the Veneto in northern Italy. Lovely. But the mistake was you discover food when you go to Italy. Yeah. And um, I, I'm in northern Italy, and I'm um, walking in Venice behind the Greedy Palace Hotel. It, it faces the, the Grand Canal, yes. but behind it there are these... Um, passageways where you can walk and um, I heard this voice and I looked up and on one of the balconies overhead was Julie Dannenbaum who was at a cooking school in Philadelphia and she had just finished her first cooking class at the Greedy Palace as an experiment so I looked up and I said Julie, what are you doing here? And she said, Will, what are you doing here? Come on up. So have some Prosecco with us. And us. And there began, that, that started your Prosecco love? Or? That started my, well, I was, it was 90 cents a bottle in those days in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, there were some publishers from New York who were drinking Prosecco with her. They were waiting for a one of those big tourist boats to leave Venice to go into the, you know, the, the Adriatic and the Greek islands. Thing. Uh-huh. What happened was I got to talking to the Circers, Blanche Circer, the <laughs> wife of the president of the company, says to me, uh, you're an interesting young man. Would you like to come to New York and work for us as an editor? And I'm thinking to myself, do I go back to Charlottesville, Virginia, or do I move to Manhattan? Manhattan won. Uh-huh. So I ended up uh, because of my grandfather and what I knew about herbs and things, I ended up editing cookbooks for them and herbals. And so that really, this is the early 70s, mm-hmm. that was sort of the kick in the butt I needed to get that collection rolling because I came back to Pennsylvania on weekends, planted the garden, and then grew out all these heirloom vegetables, schlepped them to New York, and during lunch hour, lunch break in this building, I opened up a green market. <laughs> I paid my New York rent with heirloom vegetables. I love hearing that. That's a great story. Because there were no markets at that time oh, in the sure. 70s. That, that's, that comes later. And I can remember there was a shortage of onions in New York for some reason. I, I called my Amish friends up in Lancaster and I said, can you get me onions? I slept huge 100-pound bags of onions <laughs> to New York. I was practically robbed on the train because oh, everybody God. wanted these onions. onions. They paid my bills for two months. <laughs> <laughs> so on and on it goes. Fantastic. Uh, so that's how I got off into food. And then I started doing consulting work, and I moved back from New York because I inherited the house that my grandfather had lived in. 
So that became my my work base, if you will, and um, it just snowballed from there. from there. Yeah. So this is a tough question, but. What are your what are some of your favorite seeds from the collection? Well, as I always say, you should never have favorite children. But um, I like I do like potatoes, and we have one from um, I can't remember its name offhand, but it's got red, white, and blue skin. So I'm thinking this is the perfect potato for Fourth of July, and yeah. we're going to increase this down the road. Um, I like potatoes a lot, but I also love the heirloom corns, the Native American corns. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful, and they all have different flavors. Yeah. Uh, so I would put those high on the list. I, I don't like, isn't it funny, I, we have wonderful heirloom tomatoes, but I don't eat them. I only cook them. I don't eat them raw. Raw, yeah. so that you don't get the intense flavor that comes from a raw tomato. Right. Yeah. So are there any traditional dishes that are associated with the, the crops that you just mentioned? I, for me, seeds are food waiting to happen. Yes. Okay? So uh, when I look at an heirloom plant, I'm not thinking about the seed. I'm thinking about how is this useful? Because we're not going to perpetuate any of these heirlooms unless we use them. Right. And incorporate them into our diet. So I'm always thinking food. That's the whole point of our nonprofit called the Roughwood Table. Our newsletter, our electronic newsletter, is called Table Talk. It's all about commensality, uh, sitting around the table and learning. This is where the real human exchange takes place. Uh huh. And so the you're. Food does it. You're. Are you creating recipes or recreating I do that. recipes? I do both. I'm doing a book on medieval Cyprus, the foods and drink of medieval Cyprus. Is that how, why? Is how part of esoteric why is that? <laughs> Look, they were the crossroads in the Middle Ages of food, so it's like I'm sitting on a very interesting story. In that case, I have been recreating recipes from the Middle Ages. And those are not the easiest thing to decipher. They're not the easiest thing to decipher because the, the medieval recipes from Cyprus were written in medieval French because the court was French. Oh. But I can read medieval French. Well, aren't you special? You know, yes, they wrote you it, are. They wrote it the way they said it, so the spelling is not like modern French at all. I'm sure. Um, but those are recreations. But I'm doing, I've just done a book on pickles. It's called Creative Pickling. It'll be published next year by uh, Rizzoli, New York, in the fall. Wow. And I take heirlooms, and I creative ways to, to pickle them. Pickled purslane. Um, for example, I, I took... I beat the birds to the blueberries. Oh, good. I picked the green blueberries, the not ripe yet, and I made chutney. Green blueberries work like gooseberries, and oh. they're very high in pectin, so you can do all kinds of things with them. Why waste them? That gives me hope for people in Southern California who can't grow gooseberries. All right. We could use, blue, we could use, use unripe, unripe blueberries. blueberries. There you go. That's clever. Cool. So... Jumping around a little, what was your process for growing these seeds out for the first time and in subsequent years? Well, I already had learned from my grandfather how to grow things, but uh, a lot of it at first was hit and miss. Yeah. I lost things that I... We don't want to go there. Okay. That's just <laughs> uh, sad. Makes me sad. Yeah. But uh, I would say most of the, most of the plants bounced back pretty well. He had the seeds frozen. He knew that 
Uh, so I wasn't under pressure to grow everything at once. Yeah. The things that were still asleep in the freezer stayed there until I was ready to, to uh, deal with it. But that's when I started taking notes because I said, ah, there's a learning curve here and (laughs) I'm going to need to remember next year what I did this year. And that notebook became my book, Heirloom Vegetable Garden, which has been republished. Right. I saw that it has a new, uh, a new, you know, it's, it's got a 2018 published date on it now. Right. It's, um, it came out and, uh, I did a, a book signing at Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company's Spring Planning in, Festival in uh-huh. Missouri. Missouri. And <laughs> we sold a thousand copies. Oh my God! People went crazy for it. Well, the book has been out of print, so the the secondhand books were being sold for like four hundred dollars. It was terrible. It was wow. a scalper's dream. Wow. So the new book is forty bucks, and it's a bargain at that price. I'll say, and and to have your work republished and still be like hot <laughs> like everyone right. wants it well, that's fantastic it, the book won all kinds of, uh, kinds of awards but the publisher uh, that did this Sojourn Press um, they they insisted that we re- make revisions yeah. they wanted you know the information on climate zones they wanted me to add things so we added more vegetables more pictures mm-hmm. I, we went through the whole book with a fine tooth comb and um, yeah. made it it's really a new book the way yeah. it is that, and that worked out very well and I did the photography I love doing my own photography I heard somebody say we were pointing to a picture and he and someone said he took that with his cell phone I did the whole book with my <laughs> cell phone well there's hope this cell phone right beside me. That is so great. Really, phones are really... uh, If you know how to use them, it's all about lighting and cropping and focus. I mean, and all the pictures that I take, I do it in my greenhouse, by the way, because it's very muted, soft light. I use natural light for everything. That's the trick. That's fantastic. All right, so you started talking about one of your five, well, you have five books in the works right now. What are those about? Um, Well... My Food and Drink in Medieval Cyprus is out being circulated. It's with a publisher right now to make a decision. Okay. Um, I broke my knee in January, and I was bedridden, so I collected 40 Pennsylvania Dutch fairy tales and made a book, and that's out with a publisher. I'm working on uh, the social history of the pretzel. And a history of Philadelphia foods. Okay, I'm really interested in the pretzel book. Oh, yes. I love pretzels. Well, the the story of the pretzel is incredibly complicated. Let's go there. (laughs) Um, I think I may call that book The Big Twist. That's a perfect title. (laughs) Well, let me know when that's out. It'll be a while. Does it include recipes? Of course it does, right? Or is it just the history? you know... that is going to be up to the publisher. Okay. It's very hard to do um, a history book and a cookbook together. It's true. They sort of fight each other in terms of format. And, well, when when publishers don't know what section to put something in, they're like, I can't, I can't do anything with this. Yeah, so probably what will happen is that down the road I'll do a pretzel book that's just for a cookbook. Okay. But I don't know. So, well, like Michael Twitty, right? He put out that book on the antebellum, you know, the history of antebellum cooking. 
thought that there were recipes in there, but I could be wrong. Do you have you familiar with that? I don't that? know. I, okay. I know Michael. He's been to Roughwood several times. Yeah. But um, I, I haven't seen the book, so I can't speak to that. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just let that go. All right. It is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Here. There is a way to tell whether watermelon's ready to eat. People knock on them. People look at the stems. But if you roll it over and look at it at the belly, what I call the belly of the watermelon, the part that's been against the ground, yes. and you find little tiny black dots, there, it's a kind of mold that, that develops on ripe watermelons. Really? So look for those little black dots. They look like fly specks. That's awesome. And it's fail-safe because that only forms on the, on the rind. When, when, it's right. when the sugars are at a certain level in the in the fruit, I'm so gonna test that out. Thank Try you so much. That You're is welcome. a great tip. Um, thank you, and thank you so much for being on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week. Thank you for having me. All right, Garden Nerds, you will find links to William Woy's Weaver's website. Say that ten times fast, and his impressive list of books, as well as links to all the Roughwood Seed Collection plants on uh, Baker Creek's website. You'll find that all at gardennerd.com. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of gardening information at gardennerd.com. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!